0: let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11 we're only looking at six verses today Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verses 1 to 6 if you don't have a Bible with you you're welcome to use one of the blue Bibles in the pew in front of you and if you do you can find our passage on page 622 622 622 while you're turning there just want to say a special thank you to all of you who served and helped yesterday uh, with the funeral. Uh, special thanks to Gene for all your coordination in the kitchen. Um, it was a, funerals are never good days, but it was good to, to be with church family and to honor Dick and his Savior together. So now, hopefully you're in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God, who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning, I want to congratulate you. You have all been so very brave today. You may not realize it, but you took an incredible amount of risks just to be here. There was so much that you did not know. First of all, you didn't know if your car would break down on the way here. You didn't know if another car would swerve and hit you. You didn't know if you'd have a heart attack. You didn't know if your breakfast would give you food poisoning or if your coffee would scald you. You didn't know if the roof might collapse on you or most risky of all, you didn't know that if when you got here, someone might have already sat in your spot. You had no idea what the morning held and yet here you are. Congratulations. All right. Now, obviously, these are probably ridiculous examples. But it's true that our lives are filled with unknowns, right? We never really know what will happen. We might think we do occasionally, but at the end of the day, we just don't. And the Bible reminds us of this in James 4, where it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. It says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Will our plans work out the way we think? You never know. Life is filled with unknowns and uncertainty. And because of that, life is also filled with risk. Risk. What is risk? Here's one definition I found very helpful. It said, risk is an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. I'll say that again, an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. So anytime that you do something that has even the slightest possibility of harming you in some way, you're taking a risk. Now some might be bigger and some might be smaller, but anytime there's any chance that something negative could happen to you, you're taking a risk. You take a risk when you accept a job, You take a risk when you turn down a job. You take a risk when you try to get to know someone. And you take a risk when you decide not to get to know someone. Either one could go badly for you. The reason that there is risk is because there are unknowns. If you knew something would go a certain way, it wouldn't be risky, right? But when we don't know how something will go, we have to take a risk. And as we look at our text... Four times we're told that we don't know something. Verse 2, you know not. Verse 5, you do not know. A little bit later, you do not know. Verse 6, you do not know. (laughs) So that's kind of one of the recurring themes in our passage. It's telling us this text is all about how do we live with unknowns? What should we do when there's so much that we just can't know? Should we play it safe and avoid risks at all costs? When there's uncertainty, would wisdom tell us to be conservative and take no chances? Well, what we're going to see in our text might surprise you. And my hope is it might free you. Free you to actually live while you're still alive. Free you to be bold and courageous for the sake of the gospel. Because the greatest risk we face as Christians is not failing. But it's wasting our lives by never taking the risks we ought to. So here's what we're going to see as we walk through our passage. Four points. You go ahead and throw this up. First in verses 1 to 2, take wise risks. Verses 3 and 4, don't wait for perfect. Verse 5, you don't know, but God does. And verse 6, so get busy. All right, so that's where we're going. So let's look at our first point in verses one and two. Look there again with me. It says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. All right, let me say two things about these verses. First, I love these verses because there's something in here that's going to challenge both types of people, both the risk averse and the risk takers. So whichever you are, there's a challenge for you here. Second thing about these verses is they sound really weird. I don't know if, like, what does it mean to cast your bread upon the waters? Is the application for verse 1, go home, get your sourdough, head down to the White River, chuck it in, and then several days later, go see what you find? If you wrote that down, go ahead and scratch that out. That's not the application. That's not what we're talking about here. But I will tell you, most commentators don't know for sure what we are talking about here. This is most likely a proverb that back then would have meant something like, oh yeah, I know what you're saying. But we don't know exactly. However, most likely, it's a proverb referring to shipping your goods overseas, particularly your grain. In fact, another translation, the NIV even says, ship your grain across the sea. That's how they translate verse 1. So the point of this proverb or this saying was, take a risk. That's what it's telling us. Because back in this time, engaging in international trade like this, of sending things to a faraway land to, to sell them, this was a very, very risky venture. This involves loading up your grain. So all the stuff that you just invested time and money into planting, working hard, then you harvest it. Now this represents a lot of your net worth. You're going to load that up, send it away to be sold in another land, and then you have to wait a long time for a ship to return, hopefully, with your profits. I say hopefully because sea travel at this time was fraught with risks. There are many, 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 many shipwrecks on the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea here. So you had to figure out, would your grain sell? If your grain sold, would the shipwreck? And let's just say the grain sold and the ship didn't wreck, would your goods be stolen? So many things could go wrong with this international travel. And it often involved waiting years to find out whether your shipment was successful. We see from 1st King Solomon sent ships regularly, and it says that every three years they would come. So imagine sending us out saying, all right, here's, here's your wedding, your wedding savings, your 529 for your kids to go to college. It's getting on a ship and let's wait three years and see if you can get married and go to college. That's what this was like. This was a very risky venture. So the question is, why do it? If it's so risky, why do it? Well, because there was also great gain to be had. Successful shipments were very profitable. So the risk was a worthwhile risk. Now, it's important to know that not every risk is worthwhile. If what you could lose is worth more than what you might gain, that's not a worthwhile risk. But this casting your bread upon the waters, this was a worthwhile risk. And what I want you to see is notice how this risk, it's really a venture of faith. Look, look at what's involved here. There's kind of four elements. First, it requires trust. It requires trust that what you think is going to happen will actually happen. I'm trusting that my grain's going to get there, it's going to be sold for such and such a price, and it's going to get back safely. I trust that. Second, It requires total commitment. Remember, bread here is used in the sense of your goods, your livelihood. This is what you have. And you're saying, I'm all in. I have skin in the game. I don't just hypothetically believe this. I'm showing it by taking an action. So it requires trust. It requires total commitment. And third, it looks forward to a future reward. Why am I doing this? Because I think... Someday, after many days, I'm going to get a reward. And fourth, it requires patiently waiting because it's after many days. It's not instant gratification. It's I'm doing this because I believe at some point in the future, this is going to turn out for my good. And until then, I will wait. So verse 1 is really calling us to take faith-filled risks. Even if there are dangers, it might fail you might look foolish, but if the reward is worth it, take a risk. Now, the more naturally adventurous ones of you are out there saying, that's right. Amen. Let's go. Let's take some risks. But hold on, because we have to see verse 2 as well. Verse 2 is where the more naturally cautious ones among you will get excited, albeit in a more subdued fashion probably. Because what verse 2 is telling us is that while we take risks, we still need to use wisdom. Specifically, we're told to give a portion to seven or even to eight. Why? It says, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. Okay, so what's this telling us? Keep in mind, we're still talking shipping here. Still the same scenario. So it means to spread your grain out. Over seven or eight different ventures. Possibly seven or eight different ships. In case something happens to one or two, you still have the others. We understand this, right? In our day, we would say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Same idea. The idea is spread out your risk. Diversify. The fact that there are risks didn't mean, okay, well then don't do the shipping altogether. That's a horrible idea. Something might go wrong. It's like, no, 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 no still take the risk just be wise about how you do it because if you do if you do withdraw and you don't take part you'll miss out on the possible rewards but he says instead of doing just one or two ventures where if you fail you'll lose everything instead invest in seven or even eight because some of them may do well and make up for any loss you experience in the others in other words take bold risks but not foolish ones. In other words, take wise risks. Because faith doesn't presume that everything will work out the way we hope it does. Instead, we see that faith recognizes that we don't know what will happen. And it responds by taking wise risks. Okay, so let me, let me try to bring this into our lives more. Because so far as I know, not many of you out there are heavily involved in international grain shipping. If you are, Indianapolis is an interesting place for you to live. So what does this have to do with me? Like casting bread upon the waters, this feels way far removed from my life. All right, here's here's what I think it's telling you and me. We all have our own bread, if you will. We all have whatever's been entrusted to us by God. We have our money. We have our jobs. We have our homes, our time, our relationships, our very lives. That's it's what we have. And now the call for us here is to cast our bread. To take bold but wise risks to invest whatever we have for the sake of the kingdom. To step out in faith and take risks for the reward of the gospel advancing and God being glorified. That's what it's saying. Notice all the two commands here are, are to cast your bread and to give a portion. It's all get it out there. Do something with it. The reason I think we need to hear this is because so often you and I can let the unknowns paralyze us. Right? We know that there's so much we don't know and that terrifies us. Because we, we can easily become addicted to comfort and safety, and what we do know. I want want to stay right in my little space because I understand how this works and I don't think anything's going to happen. So don't ask me to step out of that comfort zone. I'm going to avoid taking risks because I'm afraid. If it's a risk, that means I might lose something. I might lose money. I might waste my time. I might lose a friend. I might lose my job. I, I might just lose a comfortable night at home. But we forget that if we don't take a risk, we're guaranteed to lose out on the reward. Jesus made a similar point in his parable of the talents. Now, in case you're not familiar, in the parable of the talents, when we use the word talent, it's talking about a quantity of money. Not not talent the way we use it, like an ability or a skill, but think of it as a quantity of money. So, in the parable of the talents, the master gives five talents to one servant, two to another, And one to a third servant. So the one with five, you know, he goes out, he invested it. He took some risk. He invested it and made five more. The one with two goes out and invests it and made two more. And to both of them, what did the master say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. They did what he wanted them to do. But what about that third servant? Well, he didn't want to take a risk. He was afraid of the unknown, so he simply buried what he had. And what motivated his fear? His view of his master. When the master confronts him and said, why didn't you invest it? Why didn't you try something? He says, well, because I thought you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow. In other words, I thought you you were just harsh and cruel and and i was afraid of who you are so i was unwilling to take a risk with what you'd given me sometimes i think we can have a wrong view of god as well maybe we don't see him as a hard and demanding master but maybe we do see him as someone who's more of an evaluator evaluating us rather than someone empowering us we're afraid to take a risk because what if it fails Will God be frustrated with me because I, I, did, I did this thing that was wrong? Will he dock us points? We act as though when we take a risk, it's all up to us, and God is merely a spectator waiting to grade us on our performance. Oh, you did, okay. So when we think it's all up to us, we don't want to take risks because what if we try something bold and it just flops? What will happen to us? Will we be ruined? Will we not have enough money? Will we lose our friends? Will we not get the thing that we, we want? Will we lose the things we have? And because we're afraid of losing what we do have, we never step out and try something new. But how is that really any different than the man with one talent? It's because of who we are thinking of God as that we don't take risks. But the good news is, friends, that's not who God is second chronicles 16 9 says the eyes of the lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him god is watching but he's not watching to critique and to evaluate and to grade you he's saying who needs my help which of my kids out there is in trouble who needs what I'm ready and eager to help, to strongly support those whose hearts are blameless towards me. It says he won't turn away from doing good to us. It doesn't say he won't turn away from doing good to us as long as you don't take the wrong risk. Because then he'll say you had a shot and you blew it. Sorry. He says I won't turn away from doing good to you. You tried that and it was a horrible idea. I'm not going to turn away from doing good to you. Our help comes from the God who never slumbers nor sleeps. Isaiah 30 says this God waits to be gracious to you. He is not sitting back simply to evaluate. He's sitting back to empower, to help, to equip, to be gracious to us. Besides that, everything we have is from God anyway, right? So why would we Why wouldn't we trust him to give us what we need if we're trying something for his namesake and it doesn't turn out the way we hoped? Why would we think, yes, I know everything I'm risking is from you already. Why wouldn't he give us more if we needed it? Friends, we can take bold risks because we know our God is good. He doesn't love us more when we see great gospel fruitfulness and he doesn't love us less when we don't. So what does it look like? You're like, okay, I'm with you in principle, but I need real life examples. What does it look like to trust God and take bold action when we don't know how it's going to turn out? Let me give you three quick examples from the Old Testament. First is found in 2 Samuel 10. There's a guy there named Joab, and he's the commander of Israel's army. And Joab finds himself in a bit of a fix. As he's leading the armies... Somehow the enemy gets both in front of him and behind him. So he's got a choice. Am I going to try to run away? Will I simply surrender? Or will I take a risk and fight? He chooses to fight. And so what he does is he divides his army in half and gives half under the control of his brother. He says, all right, you fight the ones in front. I'll fight the ones in back. And if either of us needs help, we'll try to help the other out. And as he sends his brother off to go their separate ways, listen to what he says to his brother. He says, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. He's saying, I don't know how this is going to turn out, brother. This could go very badly for us. But let's go out there and let's have courage and let's give it our all and whatever the Lord thinks is best, He'll do it. Then you've got Queen Esther. In the book of Esther, there's a plot against Esther's people, the Jews. And so as things are getting tense and they're facing annihilation, her uncle Mordecai goes to her and says, listen, you've got to go before the king and tell him what's happening. Plead for the people. You're the only one in a position to do this. That's all well and good, except Esther knows that if she goes before the king uninvited... She risks death. Because to go before the king uninvited, unless he raises the scepter to pardon you, you will be killed. So what would she do? Well, do you remember what she told Mordecai? She told him to gather the people and pray, and then said this. After you pray, then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. In other words, I don't know, Mordecai, what's going to happen to me. I may end up just being killed and nothing good will come of this. Just one less Jew here. Or, God might use me to save an entire people. If I perish, I perish. One last one. Three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were Israelite captives in Babylon where the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, made a giant golden statue... And then created a law saying, every time you hear the trumpet, you got to bow down and worship the statue of me. However, when the trumpet blew, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down. Because they only worshipped the true God. So the king threatens them, saying, if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace. This room of flaming hot fire, I guess. It's really hot. And so as he's threatening them, saying, this is what's going to happen, here's what they say. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Do you hear it again? We believe that God is able and we believe he will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we still won't worship your idol. I don't know how this will turn out, but I'm putting my future completely in God's hands. They took a risk and left the results up to God. And the call in our passage this morning in Ecclesiastes is for us to be like that. To not let all the scary unknowns in life stop us from taking action but to trust God and take wise, worthwhile risks because we know what our God is like and we have a reward worth risking for. In fact, as I was meditating on this passage this week, my prayer has been that God would make us a church filled with Esthers and Shadrachs and Meshachs and Abednegoes. I love what one commentator said about this. He said, rather than holding on to what we have, Hoarding it all for ourselves, which is the error that the man with the one talent made in the parable Jesus told. He says, God invites us to be venture capitalists for the kingdom of God. It is about having the holy boldness to do seven or even eight things to spread the gospel. And then waiting for God's ship to come in. Some of the things we attempt may fail, he adds, or at least seem to fail at the time. But we should never stop investing with the gospel in as many places as we can. I was gonna—I'm gonna tell you a story. I wasn't wasn't in here, but I'm gonna tell it to you anyway now. Um, so one of my favorite illustrations of this was a man by the name of Luke Short, and if you've heard the story, it's, it's well known. Luke Short was 103 years old and he was out in his field and the Lord brought to his mind a sermon that he'd heard before. He's just remembering what he'd heard and as he's pondering the truth that he heard in this sermon, God used that truth to save him and he was converted there at 103 in his field because he remembered a sermon that he'd heard previously. He died just just three years later at 106, um, and his tombstone said something to the effect of, it was much more eloquent than this, but like, an old man but a babe in grace. Saying like, according to the flesh, he was really old, but he was a really new Christian. Now that's all amazing. You think just the fact that God could use a sermon, suddenly save a guy who's 103. But here's the thing, the sermon that he heard was 85 years previous on another continent (laughs) he grew up in England and heard this sermon there and 85 years later he's an old man in America and the Lord uses that now do you think the preacher who sowed that seed had any idea that there was going to be fruit in fact that preacher probably died never having known until he gets to glory what happened so what's the point the point is friends don't be afraid to take risks and don't Just hold on to what we have because you don't know what God's going to do with it. And you don't know even after you do it. Don't just evaluate the immediate results saying it didn't look like anything happened. Sometimes it takes 85 years. You never know what God might be pleased to do with your act of faith. So go ahead, try it. That's our first point. Which brings us to our second point. Don't wait for perfect. Look at verses 3 and 4 if the clouds are full of rain they empty themselves on the earth and if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls there it will lie he who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not All alright so in verse 2 he told us we don't know what will happen now in verse 3 he says okay but there are some things that we do know if the clouds are full of water It's going to rain at some point. If a tree falls, that tree is not going to get back up. It's going to lay there. So in other words, he's he's reminding us, yes, there are many things about how the world works that we can know and be certain about. And we ought to factor that in to our taking risks. But verse 4 warns us about wanting too much certainty. He's talking about a farmer here. And in this time, the ideal conditions to plant your field would have been no wind because you're scattering seed. And so if there's wind, it's just going to blow your seed all over the place, maybe right out of the field. So you want no wind when you're scattering your seed. But he says that the farmer waits and waits and waits for the wind to be just right. Like, ah, it's still a little gusty out. I don't know. If he just waits and waits for the perfect time, he might never plant because the conditions will never be good enough. In the same way, if they just kept checking their weather channel and looking up at the clouds and worrying when the rain was coming, he says they're never going to collect the harvest. Sooner or later, if you want the harvest, he says you had to take a risk and get out there. The point verse 4 is making is that we can't wait for conditions to be perfect. If we just always stand around trying to make sure this is the absolute best time to do this and the absolute best way friends we're never going to do anything and yet we know that we can't we be just like this farmer in verse 4 I mean we are so good we can always find an excuse for not doing something that's risky something that might take us out of our comfort zone so let me ask you what good gospel endeavors have you been putting off and waiting for just the right time to start them maybe family devotions Oh, well, when the kids are a little bit older, you know, like when we've got, when we're all around the table at the same time, or maybe it's Bible reading. Well, it's December, you know. In the new year, we'll start, I'll start with a fresh Bible reading plan. That's, that's my idea. Maybe it's getting to know your neighbors, connecting intentionally with someone else to grow spiritually, serving others. What are the winds and the clouds in your life the conditions that you use as excuses to not take action you know right now in this season of life we're just so busy with the kids I mean they're in school and they're in activities oh my work schedule I mean I work these crazy shifts and all hours or you know late we've been traveling so much we've been gone every weekend and oh you know what I will definitely can't wait to do that when I retire when I have more time or you know what, let's let's start that maybe when it slows down in the new year or or in the spring. Or you know what the summer is usually a little bit slower. Or you know what the fall is actually a great time. Or maybe once we get a bit more settled financially. The problem is that the perfect circumstances never come. If we wait for just the right time to take action, we will never take action. So yes, Be wise and look to the things we can be certain of, like in verse three, but don't wait for perfect. If you do, you'll miss out on the sowing and the reaping. You won't have any harvest to show because you just kept your seed nice and safe inside your barn. Instead, we're told, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. We can't control our circumstances. But we can't control what we do in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. So let us look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. And part of being wise means don't wait for perfect. All right, in verse 5, then, the preacher comes back to what we don't know. Look there, he says. as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So he makes a comparison here. He compares one thing we don't know to another thing we don't know. Now the first part of that verse is hard to translate. And part of the reason is the same Hebrew word can mean spirit, breath, or wind. So some versions take it as wind. And they'll translate it like the NIV does. They'll say, as you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed. So there they're taking it to mean wind. Other translations like the ESV take it as spirit. And they say, what we don't know is how the spirit comes to the bones in the woman's womb. But here's the thing. Both are true. We don't know the path of the wind, right? Jesus tells us this in John 3. It says the wind blows where it wishes you hear it sound but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes so yeah you can see the trees moving You're like oh it's windy and I can even tell you it, it's blowing that way now but I don't know where it's going to blow next we just don't in the same way even with all of our medical and scientific advances and our understanding of what happens at conception at the end of the day there is so much we don't know about how the life of a soul animates flesh and bone. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And there is so much about that miracle that no scientist can begin to explain. As a side note, I don't want you to miss something here. Notice that what's in the womb of the woman in verse 5 is a child. It's not a fetus. It's not a potential child but a child it's a life made in the image of god and that is why abortion is not simply a medical procedure performed on the mother it's murder perpetrated on the child inside of her womb that's not the point being made here but we need to be sure that when the bible talks about things like this that we see them this is not the only place but i want to make sure that we see that As I said, though, that's not the main point being made here. So let's step back and ask, what is? What is the point being made here? The preacher is telling us in verse 5, look, there is so much about life in the world you don't know. He says, and in the same way that you don't know all these things, (laughs) you don't know the work of God. You don't know all that he's up to. You don't know what he'll do next. You don't know how he does what he does or what he's going to do in the future. That's why we have to take risks. Because we don't know the work of God. But that's not all he tells us. Because there is something massive that we do know. We know that God is the God who makes everything. Now notice, it doesn't say who made everything. This isn't primarily talking about creation. It's talking about the fact that God is still active, still in control of all things, whether it's the winds that blow, the trees that fall, the rains that come down, the lives that are formed in the womb. He says God makes all of that. He makes every day and is sovereign over all that happens. He is the almighty, the king of creation who o'er all things so wondrously reigneth. And knowing that is meant to give us confidence to take risks. Because while there is so much that you and I don't know, there's nothing that God doesn't know and rule over. There are no unknowns to God. He takes no risks. And because he doesn't, we can. We can take risks because we know not just that God is over all things, but because we know that God is for us. He proved that by giving us his son to save us from our sin. Friends, Jesus died to pay for all of our unbelief and all of our fearful failure to trust him for all the times that we think we know what's better and we want to play it safe because we don't trust that what he says is better. God left no doubt that our sins had been forgiven by raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection was the receipt showing that all had been paid and it was finished. And when we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, God is no longer against us, but he's for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And if the God who makes everything is for us and has proven that he will give us all that we need, even when we were wicked rebels... Why would we not trust him to take bold risks now that we are his children? Do you really think that the God who gave you his son is going to hang you out to dry if you take a risk and it fails? Friends, we don't know the work of God. But we do know that God is working and he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. So don't worry what the weather in your life looks like. Take a risk And get out there and sow and reap. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. Those clouds you so much dread, they're big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. And that brings us to the last point. Because you don't know the future, but God does, get busy. Look at verse six. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. It says, we don't know which things we try will prosper. But don't let that stop you from trying things. In other words, let's get busy taking wise, worthwhile risks for the sake of the gospel. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So try it. You never know. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we can be fearful and afraid to take risks. Um, I pray that you would give us boldness not just a a blind hope that things will work out well or that somehow they'll all shake out, but a confidence in who our God is, knowing that you are for us. And God, I pray that we would take wise risks, that we wouldn't be foolish and we wouldn't presume upon your grace or your kindness, but that we would use the, the wisdom you've given us in your word and in your church, and that we would make wise, worthwhile risks. Lord, help us not to be more willing to take risks for a a financial profit or for a new job than we would be to see the gospel go forward. Let us be bold and, and try things, knowing that many times they will fail. Let that not discourage us, but let us take risks and entrust the results to you, our God. Father, I pray also for those of us who are prone to just rush into things um, without heed. Would you temper that and give help us in the body to, to use the gifts you've given us to balance each other out. Use those who are more naturally bold to encourage those who are timid and tentative and use those who are prudent and cautious to, to hold back the others from, from foolish mistakes so that together we can take these worthwhile risks. Lord, we want to see your name be made much of, and so we pray that you would help us to do that together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.